This is a Federal News Network podcast. Imagine getting killed or injured by a piece of ordnance months or years after war has ended. Yet this occurs all too frequently around the world thanks to leftover landmines and unexploded shells and bombs. For many years, the State Department's Office of Weapons Removal and Abatement has worked with international partners to reduce this problem. Here with a progress report, Program Director Karen Chandler. Ms. Chandler, good to have you on. Thank you so much. And give us the background here. This goes back to, I guess, landmines or leftover from World War II even in some parts of the world. Yes, absolutely. There are still leftover unexploded ordnance, or UXO, as we call it, in the Pacific Islands that have been left over since World War II. Southeast Asia also has quite a lot of unexploded ordnance and landmines left over from the Vietnam War. So this is a long-standing problem in many parts of the world, but the U.S. has been the largest supporter of conventional weapons destruction and demining programs since 1993. And we've provided over $4.2 billion in more than 100 countries since that time. And this is really something that happens on every continent to some degree, fair to say? Yes, absolutely. And do we know the extent of how many people, for example, are injured or killed every year by these items that are left around? Yes, there's a report that's put out every year called the Landmine Monitor. And I believe that the most recent statistics from 2021 are that approximately 7,000 people had been injured or killed by landmines around the world just in this past year. And the really heartbreaking part of that is that over 50% of those known casualties are innocent children. Wow. Well, tell us more about the program for removal. That is to say you fund NGOs, is it? Or who does the work and how do they relate to the State Department? So we work with a whole host of international NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and also private sector entities and members of foreign governments, as well as the Department of Defense and the U.S. Agency for International Development and other international organizations. So we fund them to the tune of about $265 million in the last year. We worked in 62 countries across the Department of State, Defense, and USAID uh, with our implementing partners. Uh, We provide them with the funding and the policy priorities and program management, and then they actually do the work in the field of removing these deadly um, pieces of unexplored ordinance and landmines. And what kinds of organizations specifically and what kinds of people actually do this work? So these are highly technical experts. Some of the most well-known organizations that we work with are the HALO Trust, which is a UK entity. The Mines Advisory Group, or MAG, also based in the UK, is a very strong partner of ours. So those are international non-governmental organizations that work on this. But there are also dozens upon dozens of smaller NGOs that are actually strictly limited to the host countries that we work with. For example, I recently met with a group in Colombia that is the first Colombian agency certified for demining there. So in the case of Colombia, I'm guessing it was elements of Colombian society that didn't like other elements of Colombian society that were sowing the soil with mines? So the landmines that are in Colombia are the result of the long-running civil war that happened there between the FARC and the government of Colombia. And do you ever get cooperation from the people that might have laid the mines or left the ordinance behind, maybe because it's years after hostilities and everybody's made up, 
and can they give you information from their records as to where to go look? You know, in terms of whether or not they give us information on where to go look, it's hard for me to answer that question specifically. But certainly we have excellent cooperation from the host government. And sometimes these are host governments that previously were involved in the hostilities. Got it. We're speaking with Karen Chandler. She's director of the State Department's Office of Weapons and Removal Abatement, part of the Bureau of Political Military Affairs. And what about technology? Has that evolved in recent years such that it's easier to detect these items and maybe also to defuse them or blow them up harmlessly? Yes. So there's actually quite a lot of technologies that come into play. And one of the ways that people map the area that has been contaminated and needs to be removed is through old-fashioned reporting. We talk to people on the ground and find out exactly where the areas of known contamination are on their land. But there's also more highly technical methods that they can send in. In Iraq and Syria, the contractor that we worked with sent in some robots to go in and discover some of the contamination specifically for improvised explosive devices because those are a little bit different to deal with than traditional landmines. There's also mine detection dogs that have been used very successfully in many parts of the world where the dogs are able to sniff out uh, landmines and then alert their handlers So their handlers know to go in with other types of technical equipment to remove the mines. Dogs, I should add, are not injured in this process. (laughs) You answered my next question. And removal, does that usually mean just blowing it up right there remotely or from a distance or taking it out? It really depends on the type of explosive device that's in the ground. For UXO, for example, for unexploded ordnance, then a lot of times you're talking about sometimes very large bombs that have to be very carefully removed from the ground and taken to another place to be detonated. For other types of explosive devices, they may be able to actually dismantle those explosive devices in place. So it really depends on what type of explosive hazard is being faced in that area. And under your program, there is also remediation for people that might have been injured by these devices. Yes, there's a program that is actually run by the U.S. Agency for International Development called the Leahy War Victims Fund, which is one of the uh, legacies of Senator Leahy. And this program will actually provide some amount of medical rehabilitation and prosthetic limbs and training to people as well so that they can begin to live with their injuries and have a, a productive life. And looking at the brutal hostilities happening now in Ukraine perpetrated by Russia, is it possible to start beginning to assemble maps, let's say, location indicators of where unexploded ordnance might have to be removed in the future so that maybe when hostilities are over, you can get a leg up on them, so to speak? Yes, I'm glad that you mentioned Ukraine because it's just a tremendous tragedy that is continuing to unfold there. And unfortunately, Putin's premeditated, unprovoked, and unjustified full-scale invasion has already undone our earlier progress while exposing exponentially more Ukrainian civilians to the threat of these explosive remnants of war. The Russian Federation's bombing and shelling of civilian apartment blocks, grocery stores, hospitals, schools, and power plants is making the situation truly catastrophic. And the press is reporting dud rates of between 30 and 60 percent for Russian munitions. So these indiscriminate attacks by Russia will continue to pose a dire threat to all Ukrainians for years to come. Ukrainian officials estimate that up to 80,000 square kilometers may be contaminated by landmines, unexploded ordnance, and other explosive remnants of war. 
And this is going to be especially dangerous as displaced people begin returning home and large-scale relief and recovery efforts get away. So we are already funding digital explosive ordnance risk education campaigns. Um, these have already provided life-saving information to more than 18 million people in Ukraine since Russia's February 24th full-scale invasion. The United States will continue to stand by the people of Ukraine and look for new opportunities to protect them from landmines and explosive remnants of war as the conditions on the ground continue to evolve. And just a technical detail, if something is a dud, that doesn't mean it's not dangerous. It just means the fuse didn't work. That's correct. And you yourself have personally visited spots around the world. So this is personal in some sense for you, isn't it? Yes, I did serve in Afghanistan on two different occasions. And the explosive remnants of war and IED problem there, as well as the landmine problem, is a continuing issue in Afghanistan as well. Well, we're glad you're on the job. Karen Chandler is director of the State Department's Office of Weapons Removal and Abatement, part of the Bureau of Political Military Affairs. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview along with the latest weapons removal and abatement report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.